Hello and welcome to the Forward Unto Dawn podcast. For this episode, we're going to be discussing Primordium, the second book in the Forerunner saga, which was written by Greg Bear. I'm Postmortem, or Isaac. Uh, I'm just a content writer for Forward Unto Dawn. And there's two other people with me here. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Dangerous Dave, a.k.a. David. I'm also a content writer. I'm Danny, also known as Slightly Live, and I'm an idiot. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what did you guys think about the book? I mean, what were your initial impressions of the book as a sequel to uh, Crypto? I thought it was... Uh... A nice sort of weighty book, yeah. I, I did read it digitally, so I can't really compare it to the physical Krypton book, but yeah, I thought it was a nice in concept. I like like the hardback cover of it. I actually thought about it a lot more favorably the second time I read it. I felt like it was kind of dragging on for and not really tying up a lot of stuff that we knew before, but on the second time reading through it, I thought that there was a lot more going on than initially came out. And it does, it's a definitely an interesting counterpoint to, I mean, this is told from one character's point of view that's a complement to the more analytical we see in um, Cryptum. So this is more, the tone of the book is more stream of consciousness, less composed, a lot more subjective. Yeah, it was definitely interesting seeing a switch from the, you know, the forerunner perspective to the more limited human perspective it changes the way the like the whole universe kind of unfolds through the narrative i think that was a, a response to some of the criticisms of krypton a lot of people said they find it uh extremely hard to follow along with so much alien terminology and alien culture just being chucked at them uh at the start of the of krypton of i i i see it as world building but a lot of people said well it felt it was very hard to get into. There was a big barrier there for them, so I thought shifting the perspective to a human perspective was a was a response to that, maybe? Well, it's still... I guess you can't have it. It's fans wanting it both ways. They gave a big hue and cry about, as the humans say, in Glasslands. <laughs> um, but even in this, I think they did a really good job of... When we were on Halos before, you never really got the sense that it's so much more different but here just describing how they don't have north south east and west but it's all in relation to how you would think on a ring and that the society had grown up separately like that i think there was still a lot of good reinforcement that this is an alien world you're not just on another planet right, with the um with the plot of uh of primordium it didn't it didn't directly continue on from the events of cryptum it wasn't a, a direct continuation what do you guys think about that? Were you anticipating a, a more direct uh, continuation of the storyline, and and what do you think about about that perspective, um, about the fact that we're we're we're, di- we're driven straight in there um, after the fact, and we're filled in with a backstory about him, about uh, the main character, how he got to where he was uh, in the village, surrounded by by these random humans I never seen before. It's kind of interesting that they did a pull the Lord of the Rings on us and that it sort of skips back in time and then gives us a completely different side of the action. I think, like most people, I was like pumped after Cryptum. All right, we're going to see what goes down next. And then it was somewhat surprising to suddenly shift to something where, in the macro view, not a lot was happening. 
Mm. Or at least we don't know what's happening for the first pretty much half of the book. And then we slowly get caught up to what's going on. And so it's definitely it definitely sets us up for how it's a much different book in many ways from Cryptum. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely focused on character of Chakas's um more limited perspective and his personal journey. And that's not to say that Cryptum wasn't a personal journey in the sense of Born Stellar's development, but there was a lot more of the you know, galactic scale politics and everything going on behind that and in Primordium it was almost non existent, like you said, for the first part of the book. Yeah. It's funny that the in Krypton they spent such a long time you know, world building by detailing the the universe and how it worked back then and the and society and all these different terms kept popping up. And we did there there didn't seem to be as much of that uh at the start of Primordium. There wasn't this sort of cultural barrier there. There was and, and terminology being thrown at as as much as or as thick and fast as it was in the previous book. If anything, um, I kind of didn't actually like it. I thought I'm reading sci-fi here, and we have these humans living in mud huts, licking rocks and stuff. And I was like, ah, give me more sci-fi of it at the start. Like later on, obviously, but at the start, whenever Chakas is beginning his his journey after he wakes up. I, I didn't really like that slow, that slow part of it, to be honest. I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, it's cool seeing that sort of unique, almost tribal human perspective is a word that's going to get tossed around a lot with this <laughs> series. But uh, it's cool seeing that mixed in with, like, classic epic sci-fi because it's something, at least I personally haven't seen a lot, used a lot before, like exploring human origins and then, like, the actual, you know, psychology of these people that actually existed in our real history, you know? And then just to have that being explored as a sci-fi concept through Halo is, is I don't know, it's just really cool. Well, is it's, it a new concept to you, this whole ancient humanity mixing with alien things? Is that, well, is that, that, is that a new concept to you? That's not a new concept. I mean, that's in a lot of stuff, but it's just yeah. the, way, the way that it's being explored. At least for me personally, I haven't seen anything like it. Well, I think actually it's really, Greg Bear's work is really, especially when you compare it to something I guess you would classify as more modern like Lastlands, is it really is a throwback to, I mean, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, that kind of the whole ancient astronaut thing has been around for a long (laughs) time, but this feels much more like a classic representation. And I'm... I don't want to say any authors off the top of my head because I can't think of who precisely does things in that sort of way. But I think just a certain time period, like a lot of 50s sci-fi, there was a lot of similar in writing style because it was big modern wave going through it. There's a lot of similarities and we haven't seen as much, definitely in Halo novels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons it's so exciting that Greg Bear is doing this trilogy is that it's such a, uh, I'm not going to use the word old fashioned, but that's what comes to mind. It's a, it's an older style of sci-fi writing and, and, uh, thought processes and stuff. So definitely adds to Halo in a way that I don't think anyone else really could have. Mm, definitely. I, I'm not necessarily sure that I would agree that the, the whole thing about using humanity in this kind of way is something that, that he would have uniquely brought to the whole thing. We didn't need to have almost like stupid cavemen 
wandering around the Halo. You know, what I mean, we didn't need that. I think but, we still could have done what we what 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 they wanted to accomplish without idiots, without stupid humans. You know, I mean, I mean, like, I mean like dumb humans who can barely express themselves properly. It was the exact opposite. I mean, I thought it was cool that Halo was the, going and actually exploring our own past and digging through almost you know digging through our fossil record and. And but that's the thing. That's the thing. We we learned that humanity had this. Well, we we're later to learn that humanity had this ancient empire, and we were out in the stars. So we we went from out in the stars to cavemen, and then we regressed even further than that, and then we finally we sort of evolved back up to where we were. It's like why couldn't we get the whole spacefaring ancient humanity? You know, what I mean to see how to see how far we really did fall. You know, like, like this was the time period just before the events of this book. We were at the height of our technological development, like even more so than than the Halo story is where we are in in, in Halo. Like up, uh, and apparently a long time ago, we were really, really awesome. <laughs> you know, and That's... we were so. The book brings us close to that, but then it sort of takes it all away and gives us Og and Bug, the caveman, who like rocks. Oh, <laughs> it annoys me. But at the same time, that's part of what's so cool about Halo is that if something doesn't get explored immediately in one, you know, publication or whatever, <laughs> there is the potential for someone else to go back and explore it. Like we could still see stories exploring humanity yeah. at the height of their, you know, technological. It's it's power. it's taken us ten years to finally explore the Forerunners, so the chances of finally exploring ancient humanity will be waiting at least another hundred years <laughs> at the rate things are going. So I I don't see it. I honestly don't see us exploring ancient humanity. I, past this trilogy, I think we're done looking at how brilliant we were. I want to see exactly how brilliant we were. You know, I, I want to see more of that, all that awesome stuff that we did. Not yeah, unless there are threads of that present in the Reclaimer trilogy, and it is possible that there could be. Because, you know, 343 said everything ties together from here on out. So, you know, we might not see a direct representation of that, but it'll be there, I think. Yeah, well, we we never know what's going to come next, but um, I just think it's it's fantastic that we've been introduced to our ancient selves in this kind of way, and I'm just I'm kind of disappointed that we we got up and close with humanity in this book. Um, we we take center stage basically from the forerunners of the first book, and and the only kind of representation of us in this book is as uh, just dumb, dumb, dumb humans. Although on the flip side of what you said, there is. Um the level of humanity that we're seeing in this book, I was still surprised by how intelligent a lot of the characters actually were. Like, Chakas was describing the construction of the Halo ring to the people on, on Installation 07 and had this more uh, galactic sense of how it all fit together and that, you know, he's a primitive human, yet he still has these advanced understandings and that did kind of surprise me. I thought it was cool. Mm, mm. So not all of them were rock-licking <laughs> stupid. Well, and it's not a matter of stupid so much as ignorance in a lot of the cases, like that the, the people on the ring don't actually think about that because that's their whole world. Why would they really question it? They've never known anything different. Yeah, definitely. So what did you guys think about Chaka's actually actual uh, journey across the surface of the ring that stretched for uh, like three-fourths of the book? Uh, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I, 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 every page that turned, I was like, I hope this lasts for another page, and it did. And it just didn't disappoint me. The, the, the diarrhea, the licking the rocks, I couldn't get enough. 
<laughs> any of that. It really, it felt a lot like Harry Potter, the final Harry Potter book to me, where they're just camping for half of it. And, or like the Lord of the Rings, where you got two guys just walking everywhere and not a whole lot is happening. It definitely was a little more sedate than I expected. Yeah, it almost seemed like a little bit of filler, in a way. Yeah, because it's a long book, and when you when you actually, if you have an ebook, it's probably not as apparent. But if you look at the hardcover and just see how much of it is just them walking around and investigating stuff, it's a huge chunk. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of annoying because we have this look into into this era, one of the the era we've always wanted to have a look at. We finally get it, and we have spent. Like you said, a good chunk of this book, walking around the Halo. We do that in the games. Well, it, it, that's what makes me really think that Installation 07 is going to play a role because they spend so much time basically setting it up. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, um, one interesting thing is when, uh, when I was at Phoenix Comic Con last year, I met John Goff there who you know, used to work at 343 and did short stories and evolutions. And we Does were he not work about, there anymore? Um, no, he's, I think he split off to do his own freelance comic work. Oh, cool, cool. That's my understanding, but I'm not going to state anything because I don't really know. But uh, we were talking about Krypton, and uh, one of the things that he brought up was the fact that it was written almost as like a fantasy style, and that threw me off when he brought that up in the conversation because... I never even considered that. You know, I was just reading through it. I was like, this is Halo. This is sci-fi. It's a unique new perspective. But after reading Primordium, like you said, like Lord of the Rings, a lot of just walking around, exploring the land, seeing the strange species and, and things that actually exist on this world, Primordium does feel much more fantasy-like. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there's something there, but in the book, that takes that whole notion of treating it like fantasy and sort of says, no, and that's the revelation about um, about who Chakas is, and the 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 actual narration of the book. Yes, definitely. It, you could have you could have sold it to me. You could have sold the first book. Well, the first book didn't have anything, but um, you could have sold me on the whole first two books here being a fantasy. Had it not been from the big big reveal, the big surprising reveal about um, about Guilty Spark. In Primordium, so um, I, I don't think I think that completely invalidates the whole fantasy treatment, as it were. Yeah, and that reveal uh, might sound familiar to anyone who's looked at the staff section of Forward Into Dawn. <laughs> yeah, we had um, we managed. I managed to get some some people here who got the book early and pumped them for as much information as I could, and then some guy on the Waypoint forums got the book early, so. Yeah, I love spoilers. <laughs> well, I think the other thing that's interesting about um, just the way the books are presented is that it sort of makes me question how the didact or Bornsteller is telling us the story in the first one. Because I thought initially reading it that the whole business about this is translated yada 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 is just to make so how Eden, like Eden in the Halo 3 terminals, it's not really what they would have said, it's just making sense to us so I thought that was just for our benefit so we understand why some human terms are being used, but then that we get the same thing in Primordium where it's being told to us from Spark, kind of 
makes me ask more questions about if there's something more we could read into that. And didn't they didn't they retroactively say that the first book or implied that the the information from the first book was known as well um, has been known to the modern timeline or something to do however however it ties into the modern timeline through something yeah. they called a born stellar relation. They didn't even say what it is or you know, it's just Oh, isn't it through the Born Stellar relation? Oh, yes, yes. So whatever that is, they've basically tied the first book into being being a record or something like that, the way the second book is. Mm-hmm. I like how they they did manage to fit those all into the fiction in that way. And then at the beginning of Cryptum, they also said like it was a rough translation and some of the phrases don't directly translate, but it's as close as it could be. So that says basically it is the same translation as the Terminals, but they just cut out all the words that were in brackets and slapped them in like they were actually what was being said. Mm. Well, and they just how they talk about it, they also suggest that the uh, relation is related to the Halo 3 terminals. And they sort of, because this definitely blows a lot of what we thought we knew with the Halo 3 terminals out of the water, it provides a suggestion that we might not have been getting the right information or that one of these accounts is wrong or that one of these accounts is different from the other and that it's it's two different people's version of the truth because the timelines don't really add up as we know it. Yeah. Wasn't it Frank O'Connor who said that the, uh, the Halo 3 terminals are still kind of subject to you know speculation as to how accurate they actually are? I think he said something along those lines, yeah. Like to be fair, whenever the, the, the Halo 3 terminals were, were written as sort of the closing, as, a, as an extra little bit of fiction in the closing chapter of, of Halo at that time, you know what I mean? Like, I'm pretty sure the guys at Bungie that wrote that weren't intending for it to be carried on at this point, you know what I mean? There's, there's different people, like like even like with, with Greg Bear and whatnot and the, and the guys at 343, it's a whole different team taking that on and probably expanding it further than was maybe originally intended. So if you come across it at this point, I, I would expect to see discrepancies. Um, it happens, you know? Well, it's just interesting to me that what the nature of the discrepancies are. In the Halo 3 terminals, they basically make it out that Bendigant Bias was built to study the Flood and immediately go out and basically hunt them down and find some way to destroy them. And then they only learn of his deception basically when he assaults the Maginosphere. And so the whole period from his defection, his betrayal, and then the firing of the Halo Array is presumed to be really, really short. Yeah. Well, doesn't he send a message first? Stating his, uh, you know. Well, he was supposed to be in constant contact, wasn't he not? Then, but at some point they mentioned that they've lost contact. Yeah. I think it's after he sends his last statements, you know, saying that he switched sides or whatever. Yeah. But either way, this makes it out that obviously his betrayal came at the very beginning, or I should say at the towards the end of Cryptum, and obviously the Halos haven't fired yet. So that time period has definitely changed. Mm. I thought that was cool how it took the whole uh, concept we had of this galactic, like everybody's focused on the Halo, and the Halo is 
everything's happening all at once and then Kryptom showed us that like not everybody even knew about the Halo array while all this stuff was happening on the political back end. And that's a big reveal of Primordium is that it sounds the the time frames are muddy, but it sounds for at least decades, possibly hundreds of years, given that the forerunners can live for that long or very long, regardless that this whole master builder and librarian issue and making the halos has been going on for hundreds of years. They've been fighting for hundreds of years and no one really knew about it until basically events of Krypton. So it wasn't, it wasn't his last minute with only a few weeks to build some galaxy destroying devices quickly before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot more thought out and planned. And even, even with that, it's not it, the whole thing with the halos. It, it, it didn't, unfold the way it's revealed it, it didn't unfold the way i thought it would unfold it the way the games put it to you is that the forerunners are on the 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 brink of losing the war as if it's this very harrowing thing that's pushing them against it and you even when you read through primordium you you and, and cryptum you get, you get the sense that there's people in in forerunner society doing care that the war is going on, you know what I mean? They aren't even focused on it, and they're supposed to be on the edge of extinction at this point. So I, I like the fact that it is, such, because it's going on for such a long, long, long time, it changes the whole, the whole way I've perceived it anyway, but how it all unfolded. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when you have a society that spans a whole galaxy on, what, hundreds, thousands of worlds, there's obviously going to be a little disconnect between whatever planets well, are- that's only that's only because the domain's been taken offline. Remember? Oh yeah, because that keeps them all connected. Yes, yeah. so that's what I'm. I'm kind of disappointed we never got a seeded domain in full operation. That sounds awesome. I think it's going to definitely show up frequently again. You know, whether in well, the next mentions of it will show up, but I don't think we'll. I don't think we'll ever see it. But do you think we'll see? It? Do you think we'll actually physically see it in, in operation? There was. I think the time's kind of run out because Spark is a monitor now and he mentions never having contact with the domain. Well, unless the domain is still standing and it's just the, it's it was just the connections that were severed, right? I mean, the domain is still out there. We don't really know what it is. I don't think well enough to know if it's still around or mendicant bias destroyed it or he just severed everyone's ability to access it. If you got rid of everyone's, you know, personal computers, the the internet wouldn't stop functioning. It would still be there, but just no one could access it. Assuming the servers were still there, yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of that's how I see the domain right now. It's it's still there. It's still functioning, but no one can access it. Well, they do mention it like sort of. We have no access to, so that I guess would support your reading. Mm-hmm. It would be pretty cool if uh, Master Chief ends up finding a terminal that lets him connect to the domain in the Reclaimer trilogy. Look into humanities and the Forerunner's past. I think. I think at that point, Cortana would just explode. Too much information, poop gone. <laughs> yeah. She's a habit of sucking in- information, and whenever she goes rampant, that would just send her over the edge instantly, and she'd complode with info. <laughs> complode. Yes. So, don't question it. <laughs> Should move on to the uh, the grave because like Chakos wanders for a while and then he goes to the lake and then oh shit there's some grave mines yeah so they wander around for a while and then they come up with a grave mind 
which is interesting, especially with revelations we have later on in the book. That was that was finally when the first time I was reading it, I was kind of getting like, all right, keep on going. That really threw me for a loop. There, are we are we clear that it states those are grave mines, not proto grave mines? Yeah, that's actually the the Gaius in Shakas immediately recognizes it as a grave mind. As a specific yeah, okay. and it also gives us a rough number about like it was the size of basically a dozen dozen people piled together. So that might give us an idea of the sounds like a proto grave mind then, in terms of size at least. Yes, and we don't really know what it's doing there because it doesn't seem to do much but twitch, and yeah. it's imprisoned. Like, like the like the proto grave mind we see. Yeah, so it's it's unknown what it's doing there, especially since there's... So basically, it, it looks and sounds and it's described exactly like the proto-grave mind from Halo 1, but it's an actual full grave mind. Well, it sounds a whole lot cooler than a proto-grave mind, to be fair. Doesn't he say that there it has like a, a mouth part, or am I making that up? It, well, I think he's he's more describing that everyone, like the people in it, can apparently still talk, and they're like uh. screaming to have him kill them or let him go so it's more it's more advanced because the pro i remember keys remains in the proto grave mine couldn't do that and this one sounds like it's last yeah but then there's also the proto grave mine that was aboard the infinite sucker which had the uh the legate the legate yeah um Mm -hmm. and that one could talk using it was still the grave mine talking but it was using the uh the bodies that were that were in it yeah, including it could talk through um, the Spec Ops commander's friend, too, who wasn't attached. Yeah, which we saw in Halo 3 that the Great Mind could do that, but it, it kind of shows that the development of, you know, from proto Great Mind to actual Great Mind, but we still don't know the criteria for, like, what actually defines the switch. When does it become a fully fledged Great Mind, or is there even a difference? Like, how do you classify the two? Mm hmm. Well, I think I think the most notable difference is the fact that the grave mind can communicate independently as a as a source of the communication, whereas a pro grave mind is a pulsing blob. But the proto grave mind does still have a voice; it's just a, a mental one because we saw that in terminal the yeah. the seventh terminal, I think. That could be the voice off the flow itself, but but it was like, still uh, D. Bradley Baker, so and he does um, the voice of the grave mind. Voice credits confirm everything. <laughs> <laughs> what about the thing in the water? They they were crossing over the lake and they saw something underneath the surface of the water. That sounded like a grave mind tentacle to me. It sounded like it, but it was described differently. Yeah, it was described as um, like I, it made me think of Herogok because they're purple blue. They've got these bulbous sort of sacks and they've got tentacles. Although they seem like Isaac was saying, they seem larger and they seem to sort of split off into multiple appendages almost. It was supposed to be either a grave mind or like some new life form, but then they never, you know, it was never touched up on again. It just kind of dropped them. They kind of never touched up on the grave mind sitting in a a cage somewhere at the end of it either, so. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of questions that are kind of posed because of this book that don't get answered in it. Right, one thing then, um, since we only, before we move, after we move on from that, I want to touch on just two minor, minor, minor points. Uh, the first being the revelation about 
greater and lesser arcs. Yeah. And the second that the Halo Installation of Seven was originally thirty thousand kilometers in diameter, which could only be serviced at a greater arc. And then it changed its configuration. It broke apart and reconfigured into a smaller version, a smaller Halo, and that was ten thousand kilometers in diameter and that was the standard size of the halos that we're familiar with so that implies that the arc that we've seen uh, since it recreated installation 07 uh, that means the arc that we've seen must have been a lesser arc so there's a greater arc out there which is bigger that services even bigger halos and also indicates that in addition to installation 07 there must be at least one more halo off that 30 thousand kilometer diameter well it, it it might not still be around because it could have been ones that was destroyed yeah i'm not i'm not saying it's still around i'm just saying that they, they built the two arcs for the two types of halos you know yeah it was so a there's interesting addition to the fiction i thought i personally i didn't like the addition of a greater arc like it destroys some of the significance of the arc in halo 3 if you then find out that that was a lesser arc, um, yeah, you know that was a huge reveal in Halo Three, and I remember just how awestruck I was when I first saw it when they first jumped through the portal. It was this massive flower shape, and then you realized how big it was by seeing the Halo installation compared to it. Have you seen um, Stephen? I think it's Stephen Loftus's size comparison chart. He he shows you the actual size of the the arc yeah, compared to the other things. It's massive. massive, yeah. And what is it like? You could fit three Earths across the smaller section of it, or something, or five, or I don't remember. I like the idea of greater and lesser halos. I thought that was kind of interesting, but greater and lesser arcs a bit much for me. I mean, it still fits, but I prefer just one giant one. Well, for all we know, it it kind of sounds like, especially since um, Installation of Seven was the one that mendicant bias took around it's sort of to me it might be an issue of that was the prototype and it was bigger it was that's the one he sent him off with and then we don't really know what happened to the other arc so it might be that by our time it's defunct or destroyed or whatever the arc could be sitting with worse or that too (laughs) (laughs) it'd be kind of cool to actually see an abandoned uh, arc installation that has like all its uh, automatic functions have deceased and it's like crumbling apart in space. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I, I think the scale of such a thing is so mind boggling. It's hard to get a good grasp around it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting is if, uh, if I guess the lesser arc, which is what it is now, was installation zero zero? What is the greater arc? Is that like zero zero zero? <laughs> zero zero five or zero zero B? Yeah. Is it actually referred to as installation zero zero? No, it's not even referred to at all, other than greater arc and lesser arcs. So well, in, in the uh, the terminals, it talks about the arc as installation zero zero. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, once again, terminals. They're lying to us. <laughs> There's no yeah like, like before this book came out it's like I wouldn't even thought of another arc or bigger arc and smaller arc you know that wouldn't even have crossed my mind but now there's another one 
Oh, that one's bigger. Why? Mm-hmm. Ah, who knows? Just because. There doesn't seem to be much of a point to it except to create the larger halos. Like, oh, well, we've got larger halos. I guess we need a larger arc to make them. Not only do we have larger halos, but we have transformer halos. They can transform. Well, for all we know, that's what they all can do, which I thought was actually that that this book was really interesting because it went into the actual makeup of the halos a lot more than we knew before. But 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 uh, the three the thirty thousand kilometer one can transform into the ten thousand one. I imagine by shedding parts of itself or whatever. But well, yeah, essentially jettisoning sections off in the space. Can the can the ten well, the ten thousand one probably can't retransform or or transform into the thirty thousand one? I'd have to regain the lost parts. Yeah, exactly, and that wouldn't be particularly quick or anything. You'd need an arc for that sort of thing. Maybe they can transform these smaller halos or something. Like, how small can we go here? Huh. Well, it's a matter of it's going to be the same. It's the same around since it's a ring, so theoretically, it's only as small. You could make it as small as you can make each individual section to angle it. I was I was wondering what what purpose would a thirty kilometer ring serve that ten kilometer ring wouldn't serve? You know, like what's the point? Like what is, what what reasons do we have for different size halo rings, and the fact that one can transform into the other? I imagine the transforming thing is for repairs or something at the arc. It's still kind of weird that a halo would park at the arc to get fixed up a bit. It could be, for all we know, it was like, once again, if it's a prototype, maybe it needed to be bigger originally. Like, does a bigger installation of 07, because it was bigger, to have a bigger firing radius for its weapons or something? Or maybe it's just a matter of, initially, it was a lot more power intensive or something like that. Like the the Death Star, like the second one's bigger, but it, it's much more efficient too. So, but so they built this this bigger Halo just because it was bigger before they got to refine it to make the smaller ones. But the bigger one could turn itself into a smaller one anyway. That doesn't make any sense. Well, wait, I know, I know why they made them bigger. In case they ever needed to fit a planet in between for some emergency maneuvers, you know, just a contingency plan, just in case. Well, actually, you could essentially basically park a big one around a small planet planetoid and then just scrap that for parts. Yeah, well, which is what happens in Primordium, at least. Yeah. It does pass around one, which is intense, I guess. Yeah, I don't think we've ever gotten that sort of interaction before with Halo, with a Halo and planet. That was kind of, the scale of that whole thing was a bit mind-boggling, I thought. Mm-hmm. The oh, speeds yeah. and the forces involved. You, if you actually try and think about the requirements, the actual physical requirements for those kinds of stuff, and the energies involved, it's kind of melting your conscience just thinking about it. I always wondered, like, was it the most convenient thing to do, just to let it pass through the halo ring? Like, I guess it depends on how quickly you can maneuver that much mass in space without destroying its rotation but it seems like it might almost be easier just to go around the how do you maneuver a halo something has to keep it spinning like that well we're I think the issue would be just how much damage it would do if only one side of the ring was getting the same amount of gravity on it yeah Mm. Um, but how much damage would you do the interior at least just having you know, a heavy gravitational pull at the inside of the ring versus... Catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, that, well, like, if you took 
the Armageddon, the movie Armageddon, and you actually did it like they said and had that super asteroid break into two, it would cause massive tidal waves just by being that close for even a relatively small chunk of something. So it would have kind of destroyed at least the the landscaping on Halo, definitely. Which we now know is about a little less than a kilometer in depth. That was the interesting thing I thought. There's 800 or 900 meters of basically skin, and then after that it all becomes the superstructure. It was cool how they explored that. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing I would like to have visuals with. Is even with the best descriptions, it's. I think that's the sort of thing you would, you would you would need sort of visual compliment at some point, which I hope we get, like a full cut through of a halo. Yeah, talk to Loftus. <laughs> and then the other thing is actually we were having a discussion on the Ford Unto Dawn forums about this about how the atmosphere stays in, and Primordium basically says that yeah, it's got giant walls on either side which we was kind of expected before anyhow, just on how it would work, but this seems like more of a actual indicator that that's the main thing keeping the atmosphere in. So it's like a, it's like a bucket, whenever you put water in a bucket and you spin a bucket around your body? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Except it's, it's not a bucket, it's a ring, but yeah, it's same sort of thing. Yeah, that's how it was described in uh, Ringworld, if you guys have read that. Yeah. The only issue is that the the walls... On the old, before Comet of Old Anniversary, they kind of added some sort of lip. But to be large enough to make sure none of the atmosphere would escape, you would have definitely seen more of a wall. But I guess that's artistic license. I do have a wee question here. It slips my mind right now, but um, the Halo itself... Do you remember an anniversary, they added little spiky fins to the outside of Halo? And mm-hmm. something, like Frankie said that there was a reason for it or something. It'll be explained in Primordium or something. Anybody pick up on the reasons for those wee spiky things? Well, wasn't you it know? part of the uh, reduction of the size? Was it? Was it, was it that? I think, I, I remember reading about it. I know some people on HBO got, like, went into it further, but that was one of the threads I never got to fully read. This is, it's off the top of my head right now. I can't remember exactly what it was for. Well, those things were described in the book. I remember that. Yeah, I remember. I remember whenever I was reading that, I just thought, "Why? Why they added that in? Just to have to explain in the book? If they didn't include it in the anniversary, they wouldn't have to explain it in the book anyway." You know what I mean? It just get unless it, unless it plays in the plot of Halo Four. Oh yeah, the important Halo spiky bits. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the whole. Never know. Never level know. of scaling the. Sc- Spiky bits in space or something. <laughs> yeah, that just confuses me why they why they did that. I, I do really like the redesign artistically. But do you? Yeah, I don't like I it. No, I think it looks great. I think it defeats the purpose of the design of the original ring, and it doesn't fit for Halo. Mm-hmm. But it is a really cool looking design, just in general. Oh, I think it's overdesigned. Like you want simple. The whole thing. I, one thing I love about the whole the forerunner technology from a, an aesthetic point of view is it's all seamless. It's like one big yeah. ring, you know. So and you now they've sci-fied it up a bit. You know, these little, little sketches here, little little bits and components and pieces, and you can see how it's it's not just one big ring. It's it's a composite of a jillion different pieces. That takes away from the whole mystery sort of 
ancient wonder of of what they were, I think they were trying to go for originally, you know? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on that. I'm not saying that the redesign was good for Halo or that they should have done it. I'm just saying from an artistic standpoint, like, the design alone was really cool looking. But no, it shouldn't have been done at all, and it shouldn't be a part of Halo. Yeah. So on the subject of rings, you guys remember in Halo 3 when you go into the control room on the Ark, there's all those holograms of the seven Halo installations. Yes, yes. But each one has a different surface area, or, you know, a different surface on the rings, and each one's a different texture. Um, And if you look at installation 07, there was this huge debate at the time over whether it was completely covered in this volcanic surface, like this uh, kind of sulfuric rock, almost like the surface of Venus. Some people actually thought that it was completely covered in flood biomass, and that's what caused that orange... Uh, yellowish color and like after um, what we saw in Primordium I went back to that and looked at that image again and it seems like it might very well be completely covered in flood biomass well they also make a mention in Primordium that suggests that it's it's covered in fog that it was so damaged that its biosphere never actually recovered and so it's all basically corrupted oh then there's also the part where riser um, walks through the area of flood biomass, you know, with the, whatever they are, the things spewing out spores, and he's he's having a hard time breathing because of all the flood spores that he's inhaling. But he's completely immune to it, yeah. Which could describe the beginning stages of Installation 07 getting completely covered, which would bring us back to what we saw in Halo 3. And on that subject matter also, Riser didn't, turned into a flood form from inhaling flood spores because apparently the flood can choose not to infect people. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a bombshell. Definitely. It's a bombshell, all right. I'm not too sure I'm happy with that because it sort of takes away this victory that ancient humanity had. But in a way, it does explain one of the mysteries I had from Krypton. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite parts of Krypton was uh, whenever they mentioned the prisoner of Harm Chakor and uh, how the, the humans were interrogating him. And he said something to them so disturbing that, so disturbing that the, the people present had committed suicide after hearing it. And I was like, that must have been a brilliant joke. Whatever he said. <laughs> Monty Python had nothing on that. I was wondering, you know, what what this was, what 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 was his big revelation, and actually, if you think about it, if he told, if he turned around, and told him, you guys, you didn't cure us, we we just decided not to infect you anymore. We can do it anytime we want. So that's that. that humanity fought a war on two fronts. Remember, against the forerunners and against against the flood, and they lost. They sacrificed everything fighting these two wars, and on the one hand. They lost against the Forerunners, and uh, the galaxy wasn't under threat, but the Flood was, was to preserve the galaxy, to preserve all life everywhere, and, and they beat them as far as they were concerned. They, they beat the Flood, they sacrificed their entire civilization to beat the Flood, but it, it was a worthy sacrifice, uh, and they, they, they subsequently lost against the Forerunners. But then, to learn that, oh, by the way, your, your entire sacrifice of your civilization means shit all, because, heh, we decided not to, we decided to go easy on you guys. So, you know, I, I understand that. That makes perfect sense. So that, that added to me. That added to that original part from Kryptonum. 
uh, a lot more and give me a, a much a much nicer understanding what was what was said and I think it fits in well with that and I, despite hating the concept of the flood going no you're not good food tomorrow you are food but not today I, I kind of like oh I, yeah. I'm not I'm not entirely sold yet on the on him being truthful and that they can't they can choose to infect or not infect well they can they can choose when not to attack with 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 the, what we see in Halo Three, remember, yeah. the flood decided not to go after the chief and the arbiter for a wee while. So, we know they can decide not to munch, but <laughs> well, but he's basically saying that the whole idea of the flood sparing humanity entirely, I'm not quite certain on. Yeah, why would they? Why would they spare humanity? We're not going to kill you today. We're going to wait for a long, long time to give you guys a chance to properly destroy all of us. Then we're going to try it. Well, we still don't know the true purpose of the flood, and if we're gonna say that it was a precursor creation, you know, which is pretty heavily implied, there probably is some overriding logic to, you know, how they they go about infecting different species. Well, the one thing it made me think of, sort of, was partly because we don't. It's kind of thrown the idea of the mantle into doubt as to what exactly that is. Is it kind of how they seem to be suggesting the flood works is much more akin to the Borg where they will, the Borg in Star Trek will just destroy anything that isn't or the Zerg actually in Starcraft the same way, that they don't necessarily infect everything, they only infect basically the best that adds to them. Yeah. So it might be a method of testing what's worthy enough to be absorbed, I'm not sure. Well, didn't the Timeless one I think say something along the lines of um uh, again, this this kind of ties back to another space zombie life form, uh, Dead Space. Dead Space had the whole, uh, uh, you know, unitology, unity through absorption into the necromorph life form or, or whatever. They talked about unity in primor- Primordium. Like, all once all the life was absorbed, it would be unified and create or something... I might be getting it confused for StarCraft also because there's a lot of similar ideas that get thrown around. Well, I think it's the same with what the Borg Queen says, that they're all... And even in, even in I think Halo, the Terminals, Halo, the Gravemind says basically the same thing. It's a defense that that there's no war if everyone's happy and in a one big, bulbous, massive space zombie stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know exactly where they're going with that yet. I... I kind of felt like Danny, where I'm I'm not sure about it, but I'm willing to see how it plays out. So I'm always yeah, like, to know more about the purpose of the flood, where they came from, and and why their life cycle is what it is. And I think I personally like the idea of having them being a creation of the precursors and having them serve some overarching purpose. It, right. It, so what what is this overarching purpose? But if we're if we only believe what we're told, right? The flood were created as a response to the forerunners not wanting to be wiped out by the precursors who created them and us because they wanted to do what they wanted with their own creation and then and the forerunners said no you're not going to kill us and then decided they somehow turned the tables on their creator something something flood appears. Right. Doesn't it have something to do with the similarities between forerunners and humans? I thought I, I don't. Rem- I honestly don't remember exactly, but I thought somewhere in Primordium, the Timeless One states that it was to bring unity to humans and forerunners. No, no. Oh, what? 
What? I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. Flip through. Can you, yeah, give us a page on that. Like, maybe, maybe. That seems like a big bombshell to unify humanity and forerunners. I know in Encryptum hinted that there was some genetic similarities at some point between the races. Like, very, very distant similarities. But that's... I, I can't imagine how I'd miss out that. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm blind. But we're, we're, we didn't rebel. Like, the, for, the, the forerunners evolved before us? Or were they shaped before us and they rebelled? They give the idea that the, the, the precursors had been, had been making and killing stuff off a long time before even the forerunners. And the forerunners just decided that, hey, we don't want to go. And where were we when the, when this was happening? I guess this is this is before we had an interstellar empire. I guess so. We were we were we were we had been created at that point. Were they in the process of rubbing us out too? <laughs> or what? Not exactly the terminology I would use. I well, they don't really specify how they created us. Like, did they just guide us to make Homo sapiens, or was it just like in Star Trek they have some? race came around and seeded same base molecules so that's why there's a whole bunch of biped humanoid figures so i don't they don't ever really specify what the precursors do to make us yeah it's like okay we see that this this planet earth uh with with life and we're hoping something sentient comes on they have these awesome little dinosaur lizards right now and they're awesome to watch but they aren't going to give rise to an intelligent life so we're hoping we'll, we'll send we'll fling a comment this way or a, a, an asteroid their way knock out the dinosaurs to see what happens next you know what i mean like what actually i never thought about that but that could totally work the dinosaurs <laughs> were the first ones yeah they're the first one the first casualties of, uh, of, the, of the precursor's war against us was they flung a, an asteroid at the dinosaurs. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that the whole, as much as this sort of reveals about the Flood, it makes things a heck of a lot more complicated, too. Needlessly complicated. It's like, we, we, technically right now, we don't even know how the Flood work. Like, I know, I know Isaac did a lovely write-up about the flood and life life cycles of the flood, but right now even Isaac would struggle to explain a complete guide of how they work, how they do what they do, and what they do what they do, and the complete life cycle. Well, as we're recording this, there's a thing on um, there's some snarky thread on HBO where they're talking about. Wait, wait, wait! A snarky thread on HBO? Stop the presses! <laughs> <laughs> no, what they're talking about now the fact that you can. You can have grade school kids with specially packed kits add um, glow-in-the-dark genes to jellyfish and make your own glow-in-the-dark jellyfish, and we have that advance in like just a few years, and yet the forerunners couldn't deal with one, apparently, one cell. Like, why was that such a big issue that they couldn't find a cure of? It's, it's kind of science fiction goes out the window when it's necessary for plot, and I think that's the issue. Yeah. Well, Primordium just blew a lot of our understanding of the flood like out of the water completely i mean before primordium came out i was pretty confident in my understanding of the flood's life cycle as seen through all different parts of the fiction whether you know the motion comics or the novels or the various forms we've seen in the games and like i was i had picked apart like every little detail and had it all worked out in my head how everything fit together and then suddenly primordium comes out and shows us these weird forms that were like working to guide the halo installation and then the grave mind is actually a precursor but the precursor might not be a grave mind and 
so much stuff that doesn't make sense and and now yeah like that whole thing I wrote up doesn't hold up information at all I, I think someone on, on, on HBO had an interesting point so like the flood it's supposed to be a part it's not a parasite if you think about it it's 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 intelligence. It's something you have to reason with. It's not a force of nature anymore. You know, it's it's a dude. It's a very angry dude, essentially. But it's still a dude, person. Yeah, I don't think it's really a dude, but yeah, it's essentially a person, someone who you can argue a point with and argue against, someone who has a very strong opinion about life in the universe, but still. Like one thing I liked originally about the flood was it was this unstoppable thing. You know, it was it was a force of nature, a parasite. It wasn't a crab creature on a like hovering dish flying around like the Silver Surfer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I, I kind of liked. I had to admit, I was like, yeah, cool, hovercraft, grave mines. Well, how else is it going to move around? I've always wondered what happens when you have, like, say, two great finds around at the same time. Do they talk to each other? Are they the same person? Mm-hmm. They- and and uh, Primordium actually clarified for the first time in Halo Fiction, like, set it down as fact that you can have more than one great mind at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know that was like, can you? No one knows. Mm-hmm. And, it, so and it makes a little more sense, too, because from a practical standpoint and also a, a pragmatic one. Why, if you can control it, the flood from anywhere, why would you centralize everything? You could have it more distributed and it would work just as well, so it would also be safer. And then we had that conversation on the Forward Unto Dawn forums, like the Grave Minds, what was the analogy you used? Like they could actually be routers for the same consciousness? Or well, uh, it's essentially like cloud computing. You don't necessarily need to have everything stored one place. You can distribute it out. And I like that idea. Like that makes the most sense to me as to how their consciousness works. Like, for all we know, um, the the grave mind or the proto grave mind that we saw in uh, Combat Evolved was the same consciousness as the grave mind from Delta Halo, but it just hadn't yet developed enough to where it could fully house that. But where is where is all these things stored? The flood has the memories of every single thing it's absorbed, okay? Everything. Every single being. The trillions of life forms. Where the heck is it stored? You have to store it somewhere. Well, presumably, not all the biomass got killed, so somewhere it's still sitting around. So there's a pile of jelly, flood jelly, with all the info on it. You just do a blow that up, and then it'll forget everything? Like in um, Contact Harvest, the AI... Mac basically spreads himself out over to all his um, harvesters. Like the equivalent would be that the grave mind can basically, if necessary, exist in just a few forms at a reduced capacity. So the whole memory of all the flood is distributed amongst every flood particle? It could work like that. Like maybe that wouldn't even be the default way it works, but just as a necessary. So what happens when the halos fired and all the flood that were outside of protective measures were and they, uh, eliminated? Well, we don't know if they all were. That's the question. <laughs> so we, we know, it, it, all the flood that was not protected from the halo array was destroyed, obviously. But uh, you know, we do know there's more flood out there, but I'm just saying that what happened whenever the halo array fired and all the flood across the galaxy suddenly stopped? Being. What happens to consciousness then? Like you know, what I mean, it's 
it's kind of weird that you have all this all this data and, and memories all this conscious and you wouldn't you don't store it it has to be stored somewhere you can't store it all in like one little particle you know what I mean it's not like magic essentially you know where's the where's the sci-fi explanation of where you store all this information well I guess the issue there then you can also ask is where are we storing the consciousness of all those human generals and how does that get passed down genetic memory yeah, DNA. You can you can store you can store it as DNA coding. You can store the personality within the DNA itself. Apparently, which is definitely this is junk code. You just add junk code to it onto the under under the sequences or some crap like that. You can you can make up a pseudo. You can make up an explanation. Well, it's impossible as far as we know. So it's it's more. It is kind of a magic plot device. Yeah. yeah, magic plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't like that. Not my sci-fi universe, damn it. Yeah, but what else would you use? So to say that the flood has a more advanced form of DNA that can house the, all those consciousness. Super, super, super DNA. Yeah, you could say that for the flood because it's so alien. I don't know about the, the human hearing their ancestors' voices and stuff. It's sort of an issue of also what the librarian does to them. But we, we don't know the process of how much gets passed down and how much gets activated and how much maybe gets added. Or like if it's an issue of little tiny bits spread about among a bunch of humans and only a certain people have a critical mass, which is sort of what gets suggested at one point, that only certain people have the capacity to bring up certain memories. Yeah, well, I think it was heavily based on uh, dissociative personality disorder. You know, I've had friends who had dissociative personality disorder like they were able to function just fine in society and they were normal people they just heard voices and and uh i don't know it was it was interesting like having known actual people with that to then hear it described in halo as like the exact same thing but then the societal and sci-fi view of that is that it actually literally is your ancestors voices kind of like in dune or something like that yeah it's it's the the chaos and the flood where I think the two big, I'm not disappointed in them. I'm just concerned about how exactly they're going to tie in with what we come with because they are so alien concepts to really halo, which is a lot more straight science fiction in in the games, like how that will tie in and make sense to games because really suggest that some of that's going to tie back in with spark running off and saying, I know where to find people. Mm hmm what exactly was going on with all the flood forms that were like uniting with the humans to control the installation yeah you talking about the floods the yeah the infect forerunners and stuff yeah like he looks over and he sees a form that's like a human and a forerunner combined or, or something like that and it's helping him activate the console to steer the halo like it's essentially it sounds like they're infected, but only the infections halted to a degree, so that they don't turn into. Oh yeah, they use what do you call the things that they use? They halt the the humans. They they use the wee things on the surface of the skin. Remember, like netting. Netting, yeah, it's something something. What is it? Well, I must have missed that completely. Basically, it was it was the way of halting halting the infection before it spread. And it wasn't a cure. It was just to buy time, basically, and that's what they use. Huh. I, I need to reread the book again, apparently. <laughs> Don't worry, dude. I, I can just barely remember this. 
Well, that's that's really the issue. Is there's just so much stuff that gets just discussed and left we that we have no comparisons for. I'm I was really not sure what to take of it. And then the whole sequence where um, where Chakas turns into Guilty Spark was was so out there. I think what it it was was that the monitor, um, what's his name, like Genemender or whatever, uh, tries to turn him into a monitor like him. And at some point, once he's done his physical task of safely piloting the halos, Mendicant Bias tries to remove the chaos from him. And that essentially would have killed him if he wasn't turned into a monitor. Mm. But we—it sounds especially like the did act was responsible for turning him into it. It wasn't necessarily bias. Well, maybe the process of extracting the gas requires them to be in a monitor form or something similar to a monitor form, where if they want, maybe at that point it's irreversible, and to continue existing in any sort of form, you need to have the full thing of the proper monitor as we know it. It's it it doesn't sound like the the didact deliberately went out of his way to trick him into being into becoming a monitor. It was just the sort of thing where there was no other option available. On page three hundred and fifty five of the hardcover version, um, they have uh, they he asks how badly damaged he was, and the didact says extraction of the imprint was quick and brutal, a hallmark of mendicant bias and that he never understood how to utilize the composer, so it suggests that you can do that. Under normal circumstances, fine, but it was a lack of knowledge. So it was a, a very complicated surgical tool, and he sort of just ripped him right apart using it, essentially? Mm-hmm. And then the best way to salvage him, they say, was and to campaign. And also the interesting thing is they say to safely contain the most dangerous components of the librarian's experiments. So that goes beyond even what we thought we knew. So it might be referring to how the gas was put in or something else. Yeah, there's so many threads in this book that just bring <laughs> so many questions about everything. Yeah, I, I still think the composer is it might be something very big in the future, you know that? This thing which transforms people into monitors. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we've seen the composer, as it were, in future at some point. Well, what it made it immediately think, because I was trying to think of ways every all the giant bombshells we learned basically for the last 50 pages of the book might tie into what we find in Halo 4. And the composer, to me, was thinking that might be how geasses are introduced, if they are in Halo 4, is that you find something like a composer to transfer that. Yeah. Or it just could be the background information for us on what the composer was originally designed for. Or maybe we see the composer later on in a different form or role doing something similar. So we have this background knowledge of, well, this is what the thing was originally for. And we, we understand because we read the book how it's being distorted into this new purpose. So we have that extra background flavor. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know. They do, they do suggest it has pretty wide applications in the wrong hands. Yeah, so I, I don't think we've seen the last of that. Yeah. Where do you see the next book going in relation to where the first book went, uh, the second book went? Where uh, do you see the third book ending up uh, in the Forerunner War? And where do you think the Guilty Spark plot thread is going to head up, 
at end up going because we'll be picked up on the second on the third book because the, f- the second book is all about the perspective of of Chaka's slash guilty spark so we have that that specific uh, narrative but the third book will also be from guilty spark we haven't I don't I don't think it will be told from Chaka's or guilty spark's perspective so we're not going to get that vantage point so will it also will expand to include that because it has to include it because the second one brought it up very integral to the whole thing so you know me there's questions my thought is that the next book is going to be the librarian yes from the librarian's perspective because we haven't seen so much. hope so i know she's, she's only been mentioned a couple times and showed up towards the end of each book and if she's not i think she's going to be the, one of the big bads in hell for her. uh, yeah. the librarian the builder and the composer that's the brand new lineup of Halo Four big bads well, coming out of Primordium. Didact too. Oh, he's the stupid obvious one, but I hate that. You're probably going to be right too, just because yeah. you said the words the Didact. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I uh, say must come to pass. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. To be fair, I think you have slightly more leeway now, considering how right you were that time. It's uh, it basically if you write something and I'm sitting there scratching my head, thinking, "Are you nuts?" There's a little additional voice now at the back of my head going, he's probably right, despite how insane it sounds. Uh, so you have that leeway, dude. <laughs> to your credit, the Primordium did sort of hint that the librarian wasn't as wonderful as the Halo 3 terminals and Cryptum had made her out to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, to be honest, if you if you look at her objectively away from the terminals and just point at the things that you know she's done, the terminals painter is this cultivator of of humanity. She's found us just before the end of the war, and and they're so special and precious to her, and she really wants to protect us. And look, she gave us the mantle. She loves us. You know, when you're reading through Primordium, you, you don't get that. You get you get this weird weird detached person you never really you hear what she does and she's and she's messed with you messed with your species she imprints herself as his mother figure but it's really alien and detached at all she's not really a mother figure who comes down and sees you it's kind of scary so what you're saying is that the third book will not be written by greg bear but will instead be written by karen travis and we'll spend half the book talking about how bad the librarian is <laughs> and how everyone actually hates her and yeah, yeah, that's that's really all it's about. <laughs> she went against the ecumen for saving humanity or something. Oh my god! Oh, you know, as a counterpoint, at the end of Primordium, during the little one of the moments where Guilty Spark is talking to the Oni team leader, he says, uh, "You and I are brothers in many ways, not least in that we faced the Didact before and face him now, and perhaps ever after." This is combat eternal, enmity unslaked, unified by only one thing, our love for the elusive life shaper. And then it says, without her, humans would have been extinguished many times over. Both I and the didact love her to this day. Uh, that's the thing. I think that's pretty much spelling out the didact. It's going to be the main enemy. And besides, why would only be aware of the didact? Like, why would the didact even be relevant to only at this point? Unless something had happened. Yeah. Yeah, unless something had happened. And they're... And as far as I'm aware, they were seeking out information on the didact, particularly. Mm-hmm. Again, why would they do that unless it's, you know, so I think it's kind of telegraphed pretty clearly. 
But just like the other times, I don't want to believe it because it's too obvious. Well, yeah. but to to suggest that you're right about the master builder, we don't know what happened to him. He's presumed dead on one of the halos, but we don't know. We don't. Yeah, we don't know his final fate. We don't know if he was killed. We don't know if he had done some bargains with someone else. You don't. We don't know anything. And and the composer, we never actually see this composer. We don't know what happened to it either, or in what form it actually exists. Yeah, is it is it like a robot? Is it like a, a machine? Is it a chair? Yeah, we don't really know anything. I'm kind of curious. Like, it seems pretty obvious that the didact is going to be an enemy, but is the librarian going to be an enemy or a friendly? Like, you almost have this. They they have such opposing philosophies, and yet at the same time, you know, they're married, they're husband and wife. And at the end of Primordium, we have Guilty Spark speeding off to find the librarian who he says is still alive and he knows where she is. Maybe librarian is going to ally with humanity against the didact and go against her husband's wishes? It, it, it's kind of funny because uh, this ties into the Terminals anniversary. Do you remember Guilty Spark's little rant saying, well, if only I had uh, a team of Prometheans here and, and the didact, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. The only thing that could calm him down is the, the librarian. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's... So, I don't know, that'll be interesting if... if well, it'd be predictable and boring, just for the sake of being predictable and boring, but if, if it transpired where the, the, the big secret which is locked up in Halo 4 is the didact, and we somehow unleash the big evil, and then we have to go seek out the librarian to calm him down, because he's a bit... he's a bit cranky when he wakes up or something. I don't know. Do we do we accidentally disturb the Narcryptum or something in Halo Four? Yeah, and why is he suddenly hating everyone? Like, oh my God, you you destroyed the flood. I hate you. That was my job. He's jealous. <laughs> you know, like I I don't get it. I really don't get it. I understand why people think it's a didact. It's it's telegraphed so much and a lot. I just don't fictionally, even from Primordium and any other source, I don't understand why it would be him. I think there's still a missing component that is going to be revealed either in the next Forerunner book or in... The next Forerunner book will be post-Halo 4. Remember that? It'll mm-hmm. be in the new year next year. Halo 4 will be in our hands and not so being played out at that point. Be, it'll probably be just revealed in Halo 4 then. Well, and, and to be fair, we don't since we don't have any idea when the end of Crypt, uh, Primordium is taking place, it could be setting stuff up for Halo 5 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's no timestamp or anything. Just, just so, just so, just so we have it on on record. If they're setting things up for Halo Five with Primordium, I'd be very annoyed just because I don't want to wait that long. <laughs> well, I, I I appreciate you know, from a storytelling standpoint when they set up threads like that really early, and then you only find out that it meant something later on. I like that. I can see why you would be bothered. Yeah, if the if 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 it's intentional, and Frankie and the rest of three four three dudes really have this ten year plan for the next ten years of Halo, and Primordium and Cryptum are the start of that, and we don't get to see the threads all properly bore out and answered, and and for for another up to ten years, I'd be impressed at at the level of planning and the execution of it all. If not a bit miffed, having to wait. You know, mm-hmm. 
Like I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm a spoiler whore. I can't get enough of knowing everything now, or tomorrow, or as soon as possible. Well, I, I think it all just comes down to exactly when, when that last part is supposed to take place, and then where they found Spark. It seems very. It seems as if the the whole thing with Spark's supposed to be in our time frame, in our immediate frame of reference after Halo Three. I don't think it's a leap to assume it's Halo, a leap uh, to assume it's after that time frame, like going into Halo Four sort of time. Yeah, well, it's after we really know about the Didact and know that he's still alive. And the yeah. terminals canonically, the terminals were like recorded and studied by Oni, I think. So. But there was no evidence that the didact was still alive, as seen through those. So we know that they have to have found something else that, or stellar relation. But but that doesn't finish off with his still being alive. Uh, no. Was um, were they parked above Installation 07 at the end of Glasslands? And I can't remember. Was it another one? That was zero three. Yeah, that was zero three. Because yeah. I was wondering if they would have found because the the spark. The Spark clone or whatever is actually. People are asking, well, why does Spark act so differently? But it says in Primordium, he knows things that the Spark we knew didn't, and he seems much more complete. Yeah. That's because of compartmentalization. They, 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 it's explained exactly why they did that too. Yeah. So the question of why they left this more whole version of him lying around, apparently badly damaged, is an interesting one. Maybe they didn't leave him around. Maybe he, maybe he's a survivor from the climactic battle in the next book or something. You know, I mean, the, remember the the battle at the end of the flood, uh, foreigner war. So it could be it could be he participated in that in some way. Who knows? There's maybe he was. Oh, I don't know. There's. We really are shooting in the dark. We have yeah, literally there's no nothing way to go on at this point. Yeah, I hate that. I hate. I hate blindly grabbing for straws and not having a clue what what to sort of base anything on. So I can't say any definitive. I don't think any of us can say anything definitive on this, except Isaac, because he knows. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, he's a seer of the future. So who's the uh, who's the the main dude we're here for, Isaac? What's his weak spot? You mean the enemy? Yes. I assume it's going to be something glowing. Yeah. Generally weak spot. Oh yeah. Shoot the glowing orange eye. I'll I'll write an article about that and if you let me publish it, then actually it probably won't come true. So just uh keep shooting down my ideas and I'll keep being right. Yeah, no problem. No problem. I think we can we can work on that. <laughs> so they only come right because they don't get published, because otherwise you're distorting the whole flow of time, space time continue. You don't wanna <laughs> you don't want to mess with that dude. Frankie has been in an alternate timeline where everything Isaac does gets published. Yep. <laughs> Do you remember a couple of months ago we had Frankie with the whole uh, beard? That wasn't Frankie with the beard. That was alternate Frankie alternate paying Frankie. his visit. <laughs> yep. That was completely different Frankie from a completely different universe paying his quick visit to make sure everything was kept on track. <laughs> Brilliant. So does that wrap it up? Um, I think so. All right, well, that about wraps it up for this podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening in. You can let us know what you thought in the comments section below, or you can sign up for our forums and let us know there. And don't forget to subscribe via iTunes. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time.